So I want to thank everybody for coming. Uh, I had a little bit of a yeish inducing experience today. I was uh, doing a little cleanup, um, just like picking out clothes to, uh, to donate, to throw out, realize they've got too much stuff, uh, want to simplify a little bit. And, uh, and basically, what happened was is uh, I decided to listen to a shear uh, as I was uh, cleaning up. Might as well uh, do two things at once. And I was listening to, uh, to Menachem Liebtek, um, who uh, I'm sure many people are familiar with. He's taught at our shul before at uh, Lincoln Square Synagogue. And I listened to him giving, I uh, found a shear, which I thought was perfect for, our, for my purposes in preparation of these classes. Um, and it's uh, entitled A Crash Course on, uh, on Sefer Yermia. And I was listening to it, and I, I've always appreciated uh, his teaching but especially, you know, I'm going to share some of the things that he says. Uh, definitely there was material that was very worthwhile in incorporating into my own attempt to teach this Sefer. But uh, it gave me a new appreciation. This is really, these shiurim, uh, I guess Tehillim is somewhat different, but these shiurim are my first real foray into the world of Tanakh, uh, teaching Tanakh, believe it or not. Uh, I usually... Uh, find myself teaching things that are a little bit more, or at least I tell myself are a little bit more in my wheelhouse, uh, chasidus and, uh, and uh, aspects of Jewish spirituality, um, shas, uh, sometimes gemara, and uh, teaching Tanakh is something that's very much not within, uh, not, not in my wheelhouse. And uh, to listen to, uh, to Rabbi Liebtag teach it, I gained a, a real new appreciation for those that not only it's not it's not just about knowing all the names and knowing all the history and having all of that at your fingertips. That's certainly impressive. But the ability to synthesize what the Nevi'im say and the ability to see the big picture when you're talking about Tanakh, I think is uh, is something that c- I don't have it. It's something that I think can only be acquired through years and years of teaching Tanakh and and deep engagement with Tanakh. And Sefer Yirmi, I think, is, is such a good place to start because we mentioned in a previous shiur that there were many Nevi'im uh, that stood for the Jewish people. But we only, have, uh, we only have the prophecies that were written down for the generations in our canon, in our Tanakh. And uh, Chazal tell us that in Nevuah Shehutzer a prophecy that was needed for the generations was written down. And, and, and that does two things. First of all, that tells us that we're not just reading uh, history and an account of all of these different characters, some of them very colorful and very interesting, and the different geopolitical events that are going on at the time, also very interesting and, and um, lots of players on the scene. But more than that, uh, we're reading something that is immediately meant immediately meant to be understood in our day and age. I was thinking to myself, you know, I want to give a new spin on Sefer Yirmiya and, uh, you know, a real fire and brimstone approach and, you know, we're going to tie it in to everything going on nowadays and that's, uh, I think that that's not, not, good, not really my goal. You're seeing uh, the process, uh, really how the sausage gets made in terms of preparing these shirim, but that's not my goal because it should be obvious. And what I mean is obvious is that the only reason we have Sefer Yermia, the only reason it's written down for us, the only reason Yermia, Jeremiah himself wrote it down for us, was for us to do our own introspection upon reading and learning it, and to incorporate that into the way that we live our lives. And, and this brings me back to a line that I'm, I'm, I'm favored of, uh, I, I love to quote, um, it was my first year in Shul, 
and uh, we had Professor Yoram Hazoni um, was uh, the guest speaker at Lincoln Square Synagogue. And uh, I was very wet behind the ears as an assistant rabbi. So I said, well, you know, we're having this, uh, we're having this, you know, big, big name speaker coming. And uh, he just put out a book. I said, you know, I'm going to be having a meal with him on Shabbos. If I'm going to be able to interact with him, I got to read his book. And I can imagine that's not a practice that I, that I stayed with, uh, unfortunately. I uh, would have done a lot of reading and a lot less rabbiing. But um, Yoram Hazoni writes in his book, uh, the philosophy of Hebrew scripture. And he says something that I think is very prescient and I think is backed up by the way that Chazal saw the role of prophets, the role of Nevi'im, which is that the role of a Navi is not to tell the future. The role of the Navi is to tell the present. The Navi gives us the most clear cut, the most direct understanding of events that are happening in the here and now. And through that clear cut understanding, which is nothing more than Dvar Hashem, the unmediated word of God and directly what Hashem has to say about that, which usually means do tshuva, that the Gemara tells us that lo amdu neviim Israel, right? Neviim uh, were not given to the Jewish people except to teach us how to do tshuva. That was the role of the prophets. It wasn't, uh, wasn't to, t- to give us our stock market picks or to tell us who's going to win on Sunday or, 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 or to help us make you know, life decisions. In, uh, in, in the mundane sense, but it's to help us understand reality and, and how we need to gird ourselves for the future in a spiritual and moral and ethical sense. And the Nevi'im rail constantly about social justice, about uh, religious uh, intensification of our religious experience and connection with God, and oftentimes uh, to improve our ways. They reprove the Jewish people. And those prophecies that were written down in antiquity are just as relevant nowadays. I mean, that if I haven't communicated, uh, if I haven't communicated that in these shiurim, I think I I, I failed. And I want I want that to be a refrain. The navi Yermia is telling the present in the in the seventh century before the common era, and he's telling the present to us right now, and especially in in, in the fact that we're in the three weeks now, and we're marking, we're fasting, and we're mourning still for periods of time. And for events that have happened in the past, not because they have happened in the past, but because they're still happening. Right? Yirmi is not just telling us why we're going to lose the Beit HaMikdash, why we're going to be exiled, why we're going to be sent out. He's, he's, not, just, he's not just doing that, but what, what he's doing is he's telling us why the Beit HaMikdash is still not here, why the Beit HaMikdash is still not present, which means that his prophecies and, and the events that he's dealing with in his lifetime are just as, are just as relevant now. Uh, it's not a stretch to say that because the Beit HaMikdash, whereas the second Beit HaMikdash was still rebuilt, there is a, a confluence of the first and second Bate HaMikdash, and we still don't have the third one. And, um, and, and, and I'll, say, I'll say another thing. So I started out talking about Rabbi Liebtag, and you gain such an appreciation for what great teachers of Tanakh are trying to do. It's not just fancy um, intertextual gimmicks, you know, showing this word or this phrasing is used in one place and then used in another place, so therefore we can learn uh, this aspect of it, but it's teaching us something a little bit more in, in that how, how to read Tanakh in a way that, that, that fulfills the role that Chazal set out for prophecy, that Hashem set out for prophecy, which is how to understand the words of the prophets for ourselves and, and how they're still relevant for us. And I believe that with all of my, uh, with every fiber of my being. Um, that's one thing. 
And, um, and Rav Liebtag also said another thing in his introduction to his crash course. He said that Sefer Yermia is, uh, and I'm, I'm discovering this for myself, it is not a straightforward book of Tanakh. Um, uh, Rabbi Lau, Rabbi, Rabbi Benny Lau writes this in his, in his introduction to his treatment of Sefer Yermia, because Sefer Yermia is not necessarily written in a linear style. It's not written directly as a history. Uh, events happen, uh, for example, chapters 30 and, thir- and 3 are basically contemporaneous. They're happening at the same time. It's written in a, lo- a nonlinear style, and, and that's the reason that Rabbi Lau chose. Uh, for those of you, some of you told, told me that you went out and purchased the book. Uh, that's why Rabbi Lau chooses in his book to present Sefer Yirmiya in a nonlinear style. Like a Quentin Tarantino thing where different threads of the narrative are coming back to each other and folding back on each other, um, which, was, which is what makes it an especially difficult safer, but I think underscores the first point that I made, that if Yermia was merely telling us a history of, of the events leading up to the destruction of the first temple and the deterioration of, of Yehuda and the kings of the Davidic dynasty, it, then, it, then it would have made sense for the book to be written in a linear style. If it was a biography of Yermia and it was an accounting of Yermiahu's life, then it would have made sense for the book to be written in a linear, direct, straightforward style. And it's not any of those things because it's, it's an ongoing prophecy. It's a prophecy that's first and foremost meant to decry to point out moral and ethical and religious failings and backsliding of the Jewish people and to highlight what exactly that is, uh, to constantly, uh, even within that destruction, to constantly focus on that note of hope, uh, which when we do take a look at the Sefer in earnest, we will see that even though, as Chazal told us in Meseches Bava Basra, that Sefer Yermia is kula churbana, that the whole, the whole book is, is in its entirety a book of destruction, even though that's true, Yirmiya, the book is still peppered with, uh, with beautiful, resonant notes of hope. And we know these from, from, from songs, um, you know, that we sing at, at weddings. Uh, it will be heard in the hills of Jerusalem, the voice and the sound of mirth and of uh, the bridegroom uh, and, and the sounds of joy will resonate again in the hills, which is, by the way, the direct parallel to a very depressing prophecy that we will see tonight, where he says that, that actually we, that's going to be taken away. There's not going to be any sounds made in a desolate Jerusalem. Uh, or, for example, from our high holiday prayers, God says, I remember that you followed me into the desert, the days of your youth, and the Jewish people, to, uh, to God in that sense. There, there is... Um, there is these constant themes of finding notes of hope within the most dour and desolate and sad uh, contexts. And, and, and that's, that's, I think, a very important point of Sefer Yermin. And that's why it's also because it's about edification uh, morally and not historically, which is why it's written in that style. Um, but, but that's why I think it's so important. And that's why we're still spending the first shirim, and I hope I'm not boring anybody with this background, why it's so important to understand the background with it, which is basically provided in a linear style in chapters 21 to 25, the last uh, five chapters of Sefer Malachim Bet, which is why we're focused on that. And, and that's also why, you know, you came to a, a shir on Yermia, and you're probably expecting, like, you're probably asking, when are we going to get into the book? 
it's, it's crucial to understand the linear historical sense before we get into, in, into the prophecies of Yermia proper. And, and to be sure, there's much biographical information. There are many details contained in Sefer Yermia. Um, he, tells us, he tells us constantly about his redifos, about the men of Anatot that try to kill him uh, when he's cast into a pit, when he's rescued, um, when, he is, uh, when he goes and he, and he speaks truth to the evil kings of Judah who we'll meet tonight. Um, it's filled with the, that kind of information, but, but that's not what the kind of book is. So, so that's, with that little preamble, I'm going to uh, jump into our source sheets, and, uh, and we're going to continue with the history and the background of, um, of Yermia. And, and, and part of this is also, you know, we mentioned last week, we talked about the tragic saga of, uh, of Melech Yoshiahu, uh, King Josiah. We talked about that tragic saga. There's so much more behind that that we're going to, to see. You know, it's not just this simple story of he tried to do reforms, the reforms didn't work, Yermia followed him out to battle, and, uh, and he was tragically killed in battle. It's much more than that. Uh, and, and, and we'll see that detail, the fleshing out of that narrative, uh, appear when we take a look at the Sefer in earnest. So we last found uh, Melch Yoshiahu shot through with arrows and Yermia uh, attuning himself to hear the king's last words, Tzadik Hashem ki mirisi, Hashem is right in all his ways, and I've gone against him. Melch Yoshiah was a Tzadik, and he's buried in his kever, and after him, and we're going to continue right over here, his son Yehoahaz is installed as king by the Ame Haaretz, and he rules for three months. Now, Yehoahaz uh, is uh, important to point out is the youngest of the four sons of Yoshiao HaMelech. Uh, and he's installed because he is popular, uh, more popular than his brothers. And we'll see some of his brothers are deeply unpopular figures with good reason. And we find that Yehoahaz is installed by the Ameharetz. They anoint him. And, uh, and, they, and at 23, he ascends to the throne. He doesn't rule for long. He's only uh, on the throne for about three months. And, uh, and that's as long as it takes until Paro Necho, he doesn't follow in the ways of his father. He doesn't continue or perpetuate any of the reforms of, of his father, Yoshiao. He could have done that, but he doesn't. And that's why, uh, that's why the Tanakh tells us uh, in Malachim Bet that he did not follow in the ways of Hashem. And he only rules for three months. He's do- doing all the bad like his ancestors, like his predecessors do. And he does not perpetuate the reforms, really, which, res- which are focused on centralization of worship, right? Taking out all the Avodah Zarah and, and consolidating worship of Hashem in Yerushalayim, the seat of the Davidic kingdom. He doesn't do any of that. And Paranecho comes and puts him into chains and leads him off to Egypt. And there he dies. And Paranecho installs another king uh, instead of him. Paranacho installs his brother, El Yakim, whose name is changed to Yehoyakim, and he becomes king. Now, I think it's important to pause for a second. I, I tried to find a better map. Can everybody here, can, can any, everybody see the map? Is it, is it visible on your screens? Yeah, I'm just looking at those who have their cameras on. Thank you. Um, so here's the map. I just want to give you a, a quick rundown because the geopolitics of the ancient Near East are going to become very important right now. So you basically have three regional powers that are, that are very important. The most powerful nation at the to- up to the time that we're speaking about right now is Assyria, which is right here. 
Assyria's, you might, you might be familiar with Assyria, uh, their capital city, Ninveh, um, does tshuva uh, after, after being remonstrated by, by Yonah Hanavi. Assyria, and you have Egypt. Here's Egypt. Egypt is ruled by Paronecho. And then you also have which a previously powerful kingdom, but right now is ascendant in power. It has not been, Assyria has been dominant. Over here, where modern day, uh, where modern day uh, Iraq is, so you have Babylonia, and that is, uh, that is where Nebuchadnezzar is king. Nebuchadnezzar is a brilliant battlefield tactician. He, uh, he is, uh, he is involved in, he rises really to prominence, Nebuchadnezzar rises to prominence because he is able to, uh, he basically starts an expedition and he's able to return this massive idol of the god Marduk uh, or Merodach. Um, his son's name is, is Eval Merodach, uh, named after the god, and they're able to return that looted idol back to Bavel and he installs it and he becomes, he rises to power. And, and we're going to see that for the next few kings, there's this, there's this constant balance of power between Egypt and Bavel, which is ascendant, and Eretz Yisrael is caught in the middle of it. Now, Paranecho goes to try and do battle eventually against Bavel, and Bavel manages to wipe Egypt off of the geopolitical map. Paranecho is no longer a force, and again, just back to our, our map, so we're going to find that Bavel is now going to become the most prominent and the most powerful kingdom at the time, and their kingdom is going to extend all the way to, uh, to Israel. And this is, this is the area of detail over here, which is where we're focused on, which is where uh, Yehuda and Binyamin and the Kohanim of Anatot are, are to be found. So that is, that is the geopolitical map at the time. Paranecho, having failed, um, having failed to conquer or to head off a Babylonian battle, so Paranecho takes back, uh, takes back Yehoahaz in chains to Egypt, and there Yehoahaz dies, and he installs Yehoiakim, his, uh, his brother, his older brother, as king. Now, you might ask, why wasn't Yehoiakim, if you understand how primogeniture works, why wasn't Yehoiakim installed as, as king before? Now, Let's talk a little bit about the character of Yehoiakim. Yehoiakim rules for 11 years. Uh, he is the oldest son of Yoshiao HaMelech, and he originally starts out as a vassal king of Paranecho. Paranecho installs him thinking that he's going to be a good, uh, a, a good vassal king, a good puppet of, uh, of Paranecho, somebody that he can install and say, this person is going to pay loyalty to us, pay a, an immense amount of tribute, and taxes uh, to, the, to the Egyptian coffers, and Yehoiakim seems like a safe bet. And the problem is, is that Yehoiakim, and you'll forgive my words, Yehoiakim is, uh, is a bit of a sociopath. And I, and I use that word very carefully um, because I'm only using that because Chazal essentially describe him as uniquely evil, uh, uniquely, uh, uniquely terrible in his deeds. Um, let me show you what I mean when, and, and how I could use a word like that to describe a, a Melech Yehuda, uh, a Davidic king. So here's Masechet Sanhedrin, Kuf Gimel Amid So it tells us that there were many kings that had sought to anger God. I guess being king, uh, having what comes along with that, uh, can sometimes get to your head. 
And Yehoyakim, ki asa Yehoyakim, just a short Gemara that I'll share with you. Ki asa Yehoyakim, Amar, kamai lo yadi la'arguze klum. He says, my predecessors, the kings that came before me, they didn't really know how to anger God. Can you imagine saying such a thing? This is what Chazal say. We don't even need God for light. We don't even need God to, to illuminate the world. We don't need anything like that. We have this especially shiny gold that can illuminate and reflect, and, and, and that's, that's what we need. Yitoloro, and we'll take its light. Let God take his light back. We don't need God's light. A very chutzpahdik thing to say against God. Amrulo, and they said, They said, but Yehoyakim, all the gold and silver in the world is God's. You know, God says, Li hakesev li azav. So, Nuhum Hashem Tzvakos. Amrulahem, he responds to them, Kfar nas nulanu. It was already given to us, right? The gold and silver is not God's, Right? Silver and gold is ours. Hashamayim, shamayim la Hashem, v'aretz nasan livnei adam. And he quotes a pasuk, and he says, "God is God has the heavens, and we've got the earth." Right? That is that is Yehoyakim. And then they asked, they said, you know, why wasn't Yehoyakim listed uh, with the kings? If he's so bad, then how come he wasn't listed with Menashe and Yeravam? I forgot now the last one and and Achav. Uh, why wasn't he listed with those three kings who don't have a portion in the world to come that we referenced in the first year? Why wasn't he mentioned there? So they said, Why wasn't he put in that list of kings that have no portion in the world to come? Because we know that he was bad. Because in Divrei Yamim in Chronicles, it says, Yehoyakim and his depravities, or depravities, were Asher Asava, Nimsa Alav, and that which was on him, that, that is written in the chronicles of the kings of Judah. So we know he's really bad. So how come he's not listed with the kings, with those other three bad kings who don't have a portion of the world to come? So the Gemara doesn't really answer that, but, um, but I'll put it like this. This is a little bit rated R. I hope it's okay. There's no, I don't think there's any children here. The Gemara says, what does it mean when the book of Chronicles says, Vahanimsa a love? It turns out that Yehoyakim uh, ended up tattooing his entire body, uh, including his genitals. Uh, he would tattoo his genitals and he would have relations with his mother. Uh, he would commit incest with those tattoos as a way, and, and his, the Gemara re- records a conversation with his mother. His mother says, the vessel that gave birth to you, you're now looking to use that vessel for sexual pleasure. He says, I'm not even using it for sexual pleasure, I'm using it to anger God. Uh, so he was lahachis. And that's why, that's why I can term Yehoyakim a, a, a uniquely depraved and an and evil king. He rules for 11 years and he's a very fickle ruler. Yehoyakim in, in, initially starts out seeing the balance of power more with Paro Necho in Egypt and seeing what happened to his predecessor, to Yehoahaz. So he, he finds that his safety is being a vassal to Paro Necho and, and, and his fealty is to Egypt. But that changes as, as the balance of power shifts to Babylonia and as they make further incursions and further gains against the Assyrians, and then eventually against the Egyptians, so he will switch his allegiances. He's quite fickle in that respect. Uh, one other Gemara, uh, just to solidify who this character of, of Yehoyakim is, comes from Moed Katan. And this is especially painful and, and relevant, um, because we know that uh, Yirmiyahu and his scribe, Baruch Beneria, wrote the Megillus Eicha, the scroll of Eicha that we read on Tisha B'av. And 
Uh, and the Gemara Moed Katan over here is asking a question. The Gemara is basically saying, how do we know? It's talking about the different times that a person would have to tear Kriya, that a person would have to, uh, would have to rend their garments in mourning. And the Gemara asks the question, how do we know that when a Sefer Torah, Khalila, is destroyed, that one rends their garments? When a Sefer Torah is burnt, that uh, one sees that, one witnesses that, they tear Kriya. Um, so the Gemara tells us a very sad story. And I'm going to read it in full, even though it's not such a long section. I hope, I hope you could bear with me. A uh, very tragic story. The Gemara says, uh, talking about Shalosh Delatzos Ba'arba. Rashi tells us that's referring to Psukim. Three and four verses. Uh, these three and four verses teach us why we rent our garments for a Sefer Torah that's destroyed, Chalila. Yakim. So Yermia, uh, they said to Yehoyakim, his servants told him, Kasav Yermia Sefer Kinos. Yermia, as I told you, Chazal use Yermia, Jeremiah, and, we, and in the Bible, in Tanakh, it's Yermiahu, almost without exception. Cost of Yermia, Sefer Kinos. Yermia wrote a book of lamentations. That is Megillus Echa. Amrlehu, he said to them, Maksivbe, what's written in it? So they quote from the first verses of Megillat Echa. Echa Yashva Badad, the city that sits lonesome. Amrlehu, Anamalka, he says, Yermia is writing that. But I'm still here. I'm king. The arrogance of this. Amr they said, there's another Pasuk. Pasuk Bet. Right? Cries, weeps at night uh, over its desolation. And he says, Anamalka. I'm still here. I'm still king. I'm not moved. Third Pasuk. Yehuda was, was exiled because of its moral and spiritual impoverishment. He says, Anamalka, I'm still king. The ways of Zion are mourning. Anamalka, he says, I'm still king. Right? Thou doth protest too much, one thinks. Then finally they say, Hayutzareha Larosh. Hayutzareha Larosh means that, that those who antagonized it become its leaders. Now this is a double entendre. This could be referring to the fact that there will be new leaders or that the leaders are the ones that are causing its destruction and pain. And this is direct. This goes directly to Yehoyakim. And Yehoyakim says, Yehoyakim says, he says to them, Man Amra, he says, who said that? He says, Ki Hashem hogal They quote the end of the Pasuk. The Pasuk says, because Hashem is visiting on Jerusalem all of its iniquities. Everything that Jerusalem has done, Hashem is now visiting upon it. Meaning that nobody said this. Your own actions said this. The reason that this is going to happen is because of all the sinning and all the, the terrible backsliding that you've been responsible for and that you've presided over during your reign as king. Miad kadar kolach azkaros sheba. So immediately Yehoyakim cuts out all the azkaros, all the mentions of God's name, and tosses it into the fire. And Yermia says on that, he says, and they didn't even tear their garments on this. And Michlal, we learned from that, that because Yermia, because Jeremiah told us that when Yehoyakim did this in response to the words of Sefer Eicha, when it was heard the first time, and, and imagine us sitting Lo'aleinu on this coming Tishabav. May it not happen. Imagine us sitting there and hearing these words the same way that a Yehoyakim Lahavdil would be reading it. This is talking about us. This is referring to us right now. 
This is this is this is in reference to us, Maksivpe, right? And and looking at Sefer Eicha and that and this is the first time that Sefer Eicha, Megillus Eicha had a public reading, and this was the response to the first public reading of Megillus Eicha was to tear out the name of God, uh, which is what Melech Yehoiakim did, and Yermia said, and they didn't even tear their garments. They didn't even rend their garments when it was done. So that's that's Melech Yehoiakim. So let's continue on a little bit with our uh, with our understanding of what's going on over here. So we find that uh, finally um, we find that Paro Necho is eventually defeated by Nebuchadnezzar of Babel. Just again, here's our map, Egypt. Paro has basically installed vassal king over here and Babel and Nebuchadnezzar now they're ascendant, and now they finally, uh, they finally get rid in the battle of Charkamish in 605 before the common era. Sefer Malachim says that Paranacho never, never again made an incursion into Eretz Yisrael. So Melech Bavel, after pushing Paranacho, takes from here to here. That's the territory, the Euphrates to the Nile, is the territory that is taken by Nebuchadnezzar. And Paranacho never makes another incursion, which means now that it's time for, for Yehoiakim to change his allegiances to Bavel and to try, to try and pay fealty to this newly ascendant kingdom. And to be sure, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, I know that the second you start talking about you know, when you hear about like Chazal, you know, uh, Gamliel 1, Rabban Gamliel 2, I know that people's eyes sort of glaze over, but just to give you a sense of the, the history of Bavel, uh, is that in, in early, early antiquity, we were talking 11th to 10th centuries uh, BCE, so Bavel is basically divided into, uh, into, into two regions, so there's the Akkadians, and, uh, and, and what Nebuchadnezzar does is he, he basically sees himself as, as a continuation of the early tribes, of the early rulers of his, of his land in Mesopotamia. We, the Nebuchadnezzar that we're talking about right now is Nebuchadnezzar II. There was a Nebuchadnezzar I that ruled hundreds of years earlier, and Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebuchadrezzar, there's two different ways of saying his name, is the king that we're dealing with now who is set and poised to conquer the entire Levant, uh, the entire ancient Near East. So let's go back to our sources. Uh, I just, before we do this, I keep on sharing the screen. Uh, I'm just going to look at everybody, just to check for understanding, I want to make sure that I'm making sense tossing out a lot of names, a lot of dates, a lot of stuff, but I hope that I hope that at least it comes together in some sort of a coherent thread in a coherent way uh, to understand. So just uh, from those that have the screens, if you could just give me a thumbs up to bolster my, my self-confidence, fantastic. Okay, now let's get back into it. I really uh, thank you guys uh, for being here with me. Let's, uh, let's continue, okay? So now we have a prophecy of Yirmiyahu, which basically tells him what is going to happen uh, what, what we have to look forward to in the coming years, especially with all these geopolitical changes. And this is the word of Hashem to Yirmiyahu. So we see the interchangeability of Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar. So here's the prophecy. Yirmiyahu said this to all the people. Uh, I should point out, by the way, you have to understand the bravery of Yirmiyahu in, in, in speaking out 
while Yehoyakim is still alive. Because Yirmiyahu tells us in, in Perak Chavav of Sefer Yirmiyahu, he tells us of another prophet uh, who only is mentioned once in Tanakh and in, in one Pasuk, another minor prophet, Uriah ben Shmaya. Uriah ben Shmaya is another prophet who prophesies uh, negatively uh, stuff that Yehoyakim doesn't want to hear. Yehoyakim puts out a call for him to be killed. He runs away to Mitzrayim and eventually he's brought back by a, uh, a servant, by an officer of Yehoyakim and he's put to death. So, so that's the backdrop for the prophecy of Yirmiyahu right here. He knows that this kind of a prophecy, especially to Melech Yehoyakim, will get him killed. Stands a very good chance of getting him killed and yet uh, he speaks his truth in any event. And, and, he, and, and he says this prophecy. He says, I've already been a prophet for 23 years, says Yermio, and I've been saying, good night, baby, I love you. Yermiahu has said, I have been saying this for 23 years, for, for more than two decades, I have been talking about this. So this isn't anything new, really. But you're starting to see the events that I've been talking about. You're starting to see them. Um, you're starting to see them come into uh, come into effect right now, which is why the Navi has to speak up. We're in the uh, we're in the twenty fifth chapter of Sefer Yirmiyahu. I know that I tried to stay away from Sefer Yirmiyahu and really just focus on the background, but it's important because this is Yirmiyahu's prophecy that goes hand in hand with Nebuchadnezzar uh, Nebuchadnezzar's ascendancy. He says like this, and you still haven't, Velo Shamatim. Vedabrilchem Ashkim, from morning till night, I've said this, Velo Shamatim, you haven't listened to me. Verse 9. I've sent and I've taken away all the families of the north. What a strange language. Nevuchadnezzar, king of Bavel, my servant. You know, people that are called Hashem's servant. In the Torah are very rare. You have like Moshe Rabbeinu. How could it be that Yirmiyahu is referring to Nebuchadnezzar, who is going to lead to the destruction and despoiling of Yerushalayim in this way? Is that Yirmiyahu is communicating to us uh, an approach to world events. And this approach basically says that all these kings, all these big, massive kingdoms with their conquering and their chariots and their battles, all of these kingdoms are a tool in the hands of God. They're, they're simply that. They're a means of manifesting what God wants. God runs the world. They're a means of manifesting God's plan for the world. Had we done tshuva, had we listened, had we taken the words of, of Yoshiao HaMelech seriously from the very beginning after the Sefer Torah was discovered, perhaps, perhaps we could have done something better. And now we're seeing the fruits of our actions. It's a very Israel-centric point of view. It's very a God-centric way of understanding history, as it should be. And, and, and he's telling them that the reason that this is happening is because you haven't listened. It's because you haven't, hearkened, you haven't hearkened to my prophecies. And because of that, so God is now using characters on the historical stage to enact his plans for the world. So that's how Yirmiyahu can say, Nebuchadnezzar Melech Bavel Avdi. Nebuchadnezzar is Hashem's servant. He is a tool is a tool in the hands of God to enact these prophecies that have been in the making for 23 years. I will bring him upon the land, Hazot. And this will result in a long destruction, in a long desolation of the land of Israel. 
And this is the line that I mentioned earlier. I will take away from them the sounds of joy and of celebration, the, the sounds of a chasen and kala, a bride, a bride and bridegroom, and even commerce, the, the sound of the mill, the light of the candle will all be taken away. And this is where we get this, this line of the 70 year uh, exile between the first and second temples, although it's not quite clear that Yirmiyahu is prophesying another temple being built in its stead. It's not exactly clear that, oh, it's just going to be 70 years and that's going to be it. Because he says, and at the end of those 70 years, he says, and Just like we learn about Paro, Paro is a tool in Hashem's hands, fulfillment of prophecies and promises to the forefathers. But Paro also has his own autonomy. Paro also is, has his own choices until such time as they were taken away and his heart were heart was hardened or his choice to harden his heart not to get too in the weeds on that but but they will be punished and they will be taken down and, and God says I will visit upon them their destruction right even if the Jews deserve it as if to say even if we deserve this destruction our destroyers and our despoilers don't emerge unscathed from this and, 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 and he doesn't really say what happens after those 70 years. We surmise, and as we know from our history, that that results in the rebuilding of, of the temple, the second temple, and the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. Moving a little bit further in history, and, and this will really be the last that we do tonight. I can't believe the time is up thus far. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's army uh, reaches and lays, lays siege to Yerushalayim. It's not, going, it's not the last siege that Nebuchadnezzar lays on Yerushalayim. And Yehoyachin, who's the son of Yehoyakim, becomes king for three months. Uh, he's exiled. And Sidkiah, son of Yoshiahu, becomes king. So to be, uh, let, me, let me just see, uh, well, I can't really write. I've tried to use the whiteboard tool. So you have, Yoshi, you have Yoshiahu, who we started with. Yoshiahu has four sons. Uh, we've seen the youngest son, Yehoahaz, installed after him. We see the oldest son come into his stead. Uh, that is Yehoyakim, and Yehoyakim, Yehoyakim dies, and his son uh, Yehoyachin with a nun becomes king for three months, and he is very quickly uh, removed by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Josephus tells us that the reason for this, uh, the reason for this, was because Nebuchadnezzar thought that he might try to do something like avenge his father's death or to avenge uh, what happens to his father. Uh, I, I skipped and I, I forgot to mention what happens to Yehoyakim. Yehoyakim, for all of his evil, Yermia tells us in chapter 25 of Sefer Yermia what is going to happen to Yehoyakim with a mem sofit. Uh, Yermia says famously that his burial will be like the burial of a donkey and he will be left as fodder for the field and that is what happened. He dies during the siege and he's dragged out of Yerushalayim and left to rot. Uh, and his son is placed in his stead. That's the, that's the, uh, that's the, de- the demise of the anti-penultimate. I just wanted to say that word. Uh, the third to last king of Judah. And the second to last, the penultimate king of Judah is going to be his son, Yehoyachin. And Yehoyachin only rules for three months. 
and, 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 and we'll really finish with this because we're about to run out of time. Uh, Yehoiachin is exiled and installed underneath him is Tzidkiah, or his, his first name was Matanya. His name is changed. He's installed by Nebuchadnezzar. Tzidkiah Amelech is, uh, is another son of Yoshiao. So we have three sons of Yoshiao that rule, Yoachaz. After Yoachaz, Yehoiakim. Yehoiakim's son, Yehoiachin, reigns. And after Yehoiachin, for only three months after, after he's uh, exiled, so then we have Tzidkiah, who is Tzidkiah, is the final king of the Davidic dynasty until Mashiach. That is, uh, that is the end of, 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 of really the Davidic dynasty uh, for, this, for this time. And he is Yehoiachin's uncle. Uh, let's, just, uh, let's just maybe, I'm trying to think, I don't know if I want to get into this because basically what we'll continue with next, next week is, and, and hopefully will be the end of our introductions, is going to be the exile of the Cherish Mazger. Uh, that with Yehoiachin uh, is, is the major, is going to be the second major exile. Uh, and all of the artisans and all of the officers and, and everybody is offered up uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. They're taken as hostages. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar now begins to extract tribute, installs King Tzidkiah on the throne. And, uh, and this is really uh, the beginning of the destruction, the beginning of the end. Uh, uh, of Yerushalayim and of the Davidic kingdom, and Sitkiyahu is the final is the final king. But but uh, I don't want to I don't want to bite off more than we can chew uh, in the last minute of the of this class. So so what I'll say to everybody 